This is Applying the Bible, part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Fellowship. This season digs into the truth of Genesis 1 through 12, a series we're calling God of the Ages. We have this tendency to think that the further you go back into human history, the nicer people are, right? Uh, this partly came up, um, came to the forefront in sociology and stuff, uh, post-Darwinianism uh, and post a, a naturalistic view of, of how man came onto the earth. Uh, we developed this idea of the noble savage, now, it's this idea that the further you go back into history and even prehistoric uh, times, uh, man was more nobler, man was, was kinder, man was gentler. This isn't the case. From, from, the, from the moment that sin entered into our world, dysfunction came, pain came, pain inflicted from one person on the other, separation from God. And separation from each other came with sin. And God tells us about this from these earlier epochs of time, these earlier ages. And that's what Genesis is about. Remember, it's, it's about these, these beginnings of these one epoch after another of, of dramatic change on the earth, times that we can't understand. It's comforting to know that in the sinfulness of our world, none of it takes God by surprise. None of it takes God by surprise. And we learn from Genesis 4 that, that it, it only took one generation after Adam and Eve for there to be a sad spiral into a sinful society. You know, We've seen it happen in our communities. Maybe you've seen it happen uh, with people that, that you knew, that you knew at work, that you knew in your neighborhood and whatnot. All of a sudden, uh, it's on the news. Something terrible has happened. Someone has done something. Somebody has done the unthinkable. Inevitably, neighbors are interviewed. You read the whole gambit of statements like, he was always a little off, or everything seemed just fine, or, or she was, seemed like the perfect loving mother, or, you know, we knew that they were having trouble. I had one of these kind of like uh, experiences back in 2014 when, when I got word that um, uh, a man that I went to school with at Moody, I, uh, he was um, worked closely with me as he was my assistant RA, and I was RA on our floor there, and he was a youth pastor. He was uh, a longtime uh, pastor, loving father, um, knew his wife uh, from Moody as well. She was his high school sweetheart. His name's D.B. And got word D.B. had committed suicide. D.B. had driven off into the woods and, and rigged something up so that he could breathe in the exhaust from his car and killed himself and left two beautiful sons. Then we found out that, that, that D.B. had been hiding financial things from his wife, that, that every time she was saying, how can we afford this? Are you sure we can afford this? Yeah, we're fine. Yeah, we're fine. 
and, and their, the financial state of their home was getting worse and worse and worse. And all he was doing was just hiding and hiding. Even had one of the elders come up to him and say, from his church and say, um, did I see your name in the papers being listed for bankruptcy? He said, no, that was somebody else. That's a mistake. Not me. Well, on the day that he couldn't hide it any longer is when he took his own life. The day that he found out there was no stopping the bank from taking his family's home and his wife and kids knew nothing about it. And, and the enemy took him to such a dark place that he thought the better thing to do is for me to just step out of this world. It was a horrible thing. And hearing that, I, I thought of friends that I hadn't checked up on. I thought of times that I had thought it better to hide my sin than to be open and transparent. I thought of God's grace toward me and my family, that undeserved, that favor that I didn't deserve from God, that I could have easily been driven to a place like that. In Genesis 4, we have a little insight into the beginning of the first sad spiral And it's a personal spiral. But as we read on in Genesis 4, we see that it spirals into a whole sinful society. And we learn about from these few statements about Cain and his brother Abel of how it started. And we'll pick up in verse 3. And we learned about how from, from Cain and how we should be weary. We should beware of being like Cain. First of all, we need to beware of religious rites. In other words, things that are only ceremony, only ritual, void of a worshipful heart. That's what we see in contrast between Cain and his brother Abel. When we read in verse 3 of Genesis 4, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now we're just kind of reviewing what we hit on last week, so I'm going to resist the temptation to get back into this. But we looked at how we can avoid religious rites or only ritual, and we need to avoid this mentality of, I'm just keeping God off my back. I'm just doing what he's required of me. Rather than, I want to worship God. I want to show him what he's worth to me and walk in relationship with him. Walking in trust and obedience And we looked at how when we bring offerings to him of our time or of our finances or of our our resources, they should be planned. They should be intentional. They should be given to, to be used as he directs. They should be given in faith. Decided ahead of time. First fruits. Or Abel brought his firstborn, trusting that God will provide. This is different from offering God what is left over of my time, what is left over of my resources. You know, one of my favorite questions that I was asked yesterday at the fall festival was by a lady that said, how are you going to make any money if you don't have a box out for people to put it in? 
And, and what a perfect thing. Not that somebody's, it's wrong for somebody to charge money for something like that. You know, that we were just, and, and obviously I loved saying, hey, we are doing this to love the community, to show God's love to people. But that's the way that we think. How am I going to get this if I'm not doing this? And unfortunately, a lot of times we think that way in a relationship with God. I need this. How am I going to get this? I better do this. And it becomes just a religious rite. I'm just walking through these religious steps. We learned also last week that we need to beware of a hardened heart. We read that it said, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is, to, is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. We learned that Cain didn't listen to it at all. It says Cain spoke to his brother to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. He talked about how, how we beware of a hardened heart. Whereas Cain had God speaking to him physically, audibly. If you know Christ as your Savior, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. God is able to guide you, to speak to you, to walk with you. Know where he is speaking to you. Where is he convicting you, exhorting you to continue in your faith? God, God tells us in Romans eight sixteen, his spirit testifies to our spirit that we are children of God. He should be convicting us. He should be directing us. He should be challenging us. Are you ignoring him? God is trying to pull you out possibly of a, out of a sad downward spiral. So we've got to move forward into this morning. We look at a generational rebellion that, call, that followed in Cain's footsteps. It didn't just stop with Cain. As we look at this sad spiral into a sinful community, a sinful society. This past week, Hurricane Michael took our nation like by surprise. It intensified from a tropical storm to a major hurricane in just two days, leaving little time for preparations. One person speaking of the condos that used to be on the beach owned by her brother, she said, they're not there. It's gone. Gone. What began as a blip of the news over the past that weekend escalated on Wednesday to the most powerful hurricane to ever hit that area of the United States. Two miles an hour slower than what would have been considered a Category 5 hurricane. What's amazing to me is with all of our technology and knowledge, we still can't predict what storms will do. Every one of them is like, this is like never seen before. Last week, we saw how Cain's temptation intensified as he ignored God's warning. Cain's temptation, understand, took him by surprise. It overtook him just as God told him it would. And God can predict what will happen in the storm of temptation. And God's prediction came true for Cain. 
Cain was swept away by his anger and his envy. And Abel, his brother, lay dead. And God's enemy laughed. God's enemy laughed. We can learn from Cain's response to conviction, and we can beware, beware of sinful self-pity. Even after his, his murderous action, when God comes and speaks to him, says, then God, the Lord God said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain shows a disrespectful lack of acknowledgement of God's omniscience and his omnipresence, you know? I wonder where he did that. He got that from, right? Remember his parents hiding in the trees from God? Maybe he's not going to see us here. It's like a child when a child gets caught, right? And they like hide something behind their back. They're like, the parents like, what's that behind your back? I don't have anything behind my back. Thinking, I hope they don't look behind my back. We continue on. He says, and the Lord said, "What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground." which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer from the earth. So Cain's curse is that he'll be a wandering, vagrant, unable to grow anything. Some of you feel like you may still have the curse of Cain, right? I joke with my mother-in-law. I tell her that her home is the plant hospice. All plants come there to die. But more importantly, a part of this is is he would become a wanderer. A wanderer from God's presence. A wanderer from God's purpose. We'll actually see that. It'll say he went out from God's presence. But we'll see he wasn't a wanderer. um, He wasn't away from other people. And so we see more of Cain's sinful self-pity. In verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be, and from your face I shall be hidden and shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. We, we learn from Jude verse 11 that the way of Cain is one that lacks faith. It it's shows itself in envy of God's dealings with the righteous. It shows itself in murderer, murderous acts and also a denial of responsibility. Anybody remember the movie The Karate Kid? Right? Okay, good. Karate Kid. And, you know, what does Mr. Miyagi teach him? He's like, I want to learn karate. It's like, okay, go paint the fence. You know, brush up. Brush down, brush up, brush down. He's, but I want to learn karate. He's like, go wax the car. You know, wax on, wax off, wax on, wax off, right? And so, and he's like, I, I, don't, I don't get it. You know, why am I all doing this? And, and so finally, Mr. Miyagi starts throwing some punches at him. And of course, because he learned these muscle movements, all of a sudden, wax off blocks a punch. You know, and 
brushed down blocks a kick. Well, sadly, when we suffer from sinful self-pity, we're learning to block God's convictions. We're learning to block God speaking to our hearts. We're learning wax off for a bad reason. Pride blocks all attempts of attacking sinful self-centeredness. And self-pity is pride. Self-pity is pride. Because it's saying, I deserve better than this. I don't deserve this consequence. What I did isn't bad enough for this we hear this in our marriages, in our family. I do everything around here. That's pride. That's self-pity. I deserve better. I deserved a little to be a little selfish. When, when, somebody, uh, when we think about helping others or when somebody asks us to help others, I just need to focus on me right now. I mean, that's good if we're talking about I don't need to be judgmental of other people. I need to focus on where I, where God needs to work on me. But when we're saying, oh, I, I can't do that. I need to focus on me. That's, that's a prideful self-pity. And if you wallow in self-pity, you're closing your heart to the Lord's correction. When you're confronted by someone, listen. Even look for that small amount of truth in that confrontation. I've shared with you my prayer before when, when, when I'm, I'm feeling bad about something or somebody brings something to my attention. My, my little prayer is, Lord, if this is condemnation, take it away. But if it's conviction, let it stay. If it's condemnation, take it away. But if it's conviction, let it stay. When you know you're being confronted by the Holy Spirit, accept it as truth. Admit it. Own it. Confess it acknowledge that, that we're sinners. You know what acknowledging that we are sinners means? We're eligible for grace. Acknowledging that you're a sinner means you're eligible for grace. That's what 1 John 1, 9 is talking about. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to cleanse us of our sins. Confession says, confession lets God's cleaning crew in and lets him do his work. That's not what Cain does here. He reverts to self-pity. We need to be wary of that. We see in verse 15, Cain is shown mercy by God with this response of, somebody's going to kill me. So God says, then the Lord said to him, not so, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest he be found, uh, lest any who found him should attack him. Now, we have no idea what this mark on Cain was or that it passed down to his descendants or something. And to think that or to argue that a particular people group has the mark of Cain only reveals a racist mindset. But Cain's descendants themselves didn't carry this mark, but they resembled his heart. And that's what's sad. And cast from God's presence, Cain and his descendants continue his sinful ways. We pick up in verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city. He called the name of that city after the name of his son, Enoch. 
Nod means wandering. I, either Cain or somebody else named this city wandering. It's a place for wanderers. And J.R.R. Tolkien is known for saying, in writing in, of Gandalf saying, not all wanderers are lost. But these wanderers were very spiritually lost. One thing that we have to make note of, when you read in Genesis 5, you, know, you learn about Seth and you learn about the descendants of Seth. It talks about, and this person lived for this many years, and then they had this son, and, and they lived for this long, much longer, and then they died. You don't see that with Cain and his descendants. And to read this, it sounds like it's just happening one right after another here. But I don't believe that to be the case. Uh, for one thing, if you compare, as we'll read, of Cain's descendants to Seth's descendants, many of the names are very similar. And I believe that's evidence of what the Lord's enemy typically does, and he's trying to create a parallel false line. But I, I believe that it took Cain a long time to find a descendant of Adam and Eve, a female, that was willing to marry him. He needed to find a fellow wanderer. He needed to find a woman that was out there where he was. And like I said, we don't see in the genealogy or the descendants of Cain the timing of it like we see with Seth. But I believe this took a long time. And, and the earth is being populated during this time as well. Um, Cain likely married his sister or his niece. And you've got to understand that this only became outlawed by God's moral law by the time of um, the Mosaic law. But prior, and the reason for that is because the gene pool, the amount of genetic differences had become so narrowed by that time that for someone to marry someone so genetically close to them would be likely that they would, ex- would recessed genes were more likely to be present in that child and there would be more likely to be uh, birth defects and such like that. But at the time of Adam and Eve, the gene pool, I mean, the genetic variance of every person that's ever walked on the earth was there within Adam and Eve. And so that's why it was not taboo at that time and it wasn't outlawed at that time for brother and sister to be husband and wife. Okay, we've gone into that enough. But also, the, the earth would have been populated at rapid speed, exponentially growing. Uh, at, at our population rate, uh, Answers in Genesis says that if, even if it was only doubling every 40 years, it would have only taken uh, under 5,000 years for there to be 8.6 billion people on the earth. So, and, and here you've got Adam and Eve who are commanded to crank out kids and fill the earth. The population would have been growing exponentially. So by the time you've got a, 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 a woman that's, that's out there where Cain is and willing to marry him, a wanderer as he is, there's a lot of people on the earth. But here is a man in rebellion against God who did not obey, who destroyed the godly, who denied his responsibility for it, and whose sense of guilt is eased by the cultural development and the geographical expansion of his people. And it continues on to Enoch, the son of Cain, was born Ired, and Ired, the father of 
fathered Mahaliel. Mahaliel fathered Methushael. Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. And the name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada born Jabal, and he fathered those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, who was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was a uh, forger of all instruments and bronze, of bronze and of iron. And the sister, Tubal, the sister of Tubal Cain was Naaman. Now, one thing that was fascinating to me about this, and I know that you're sitting here thinking, why are we reading these things, you know? But this is a window into understanding pre-flood culture, okay? Prior to the flood, you have the expansion of culture. You have the expansion of cities, the expansion of trades and things like this. And we have actually other uh, histories that were written down about pre-flood culture from other uh, ancient Near East nations. Mesopotamian texts descend um, uh, like this. This one describing uh, the descendants of Cain and other of Adam and Eve's children. For instance, the Sumerian king list that is a post-flood history written about pre-flood people, the Sumerian king list, it describes monarchs ruling prior to what they call the great deluge of the flood. And you can read about how it, that these people found, were founding cities and, and what were the primary industries of different people and, and how they brought those to bear with the culture and these pre-flood rulers. And such parallels confirm the historicity of this pre-flood account. So what I'm trying to say is we have other non-biblical uh, texts that describe other pre-flood cultures, and they're written in this same way. And this person built this city, and his brother built up this industry, and they had this brother, and he started this industry. This was the way that these cultures were described. And the way that it's described in the scriptures is described in the same way as other pre-flood scriptures are described. It was fascinating to me. I don't know if it matters to you. But Lamech here is the pinnacle of this sinful society that descended from Cain. We read in verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. He's the first man to say, I married two wives and I'm able to take care of them both. Isn't that bigamy? Right? So that's a double, but it, Mormons actually quote this verse as saying, see, polygamy goes way back and is normal, which is sad. We know that Genesis 2 verses 21 through 25, God tells us that God's plan, God's design is for one man and one woman to be husband and wife and to bear his image together as they extend his dominion in a complementary nature to one another. As they extend his dominion on the earth. The Apologetic Study Bible says Lamech's practice of polygamy is to be understood as typical of the wicked whose willful pride seeks to be satisfied by the multiplication of wives or other symbols of status and acts of self-indulgence. And so what we see here, a wife becomes a commodity. 
commodity, a thing. And from these verses 16 through 24, we can see that we need to beware of a sin-commending community. This is not new to our day and age. This is not new to our culture, to how we see our culture sliding in America. And we need to beware of a community that commends sin. From Cain to Lamech, this is a sin-commending community. Their battle cry was, don't knock it till you've tried it. That was their battle cry. Lamech was a murderous, vindictive, vengeful man who turned wives into property. And he is the pinnacle here of the descendants of Cain. He's boasting, threatening, revenge of 70-fold, extravagant excess. And notice he's referring to Cain's protection by God as being sevenfold. God would protect Cain sevenfold? Well, guess what? I take care of myself 70 times seven, which, which is a number of total extravagance. He claims to provide better protection through vengeance than what God would provide. He's the closest to Cain. The closest that Cain ever got to God was religious. Just going through the motions and not even doing that well. And his descendants ended up boasting that they can take care of themselves far better than God ever could. These are the ancestors of those who would turn the world into a place so sinful that God had to destroy it with a flood. We live in a time where sin is condoned, celebrated, or even recommended. Does anybody know what October 11th was this past week? National Coming Out Day. National Coming Out Day. Where, where, where people are, are encouraged to proclaim their temptation as their lifestyle. This is my lifestyle from here on out. This is who I am. I know it feels like the world is against anything biblical or Christian. You know, in our day and age, maybe you're familiar with this, people live not with physical communities, they live with online communities. And and the fact is, is if somebody wants to find affirmation and if they want to find uh, someone that's going to be supportive, no matter how strange or, um, uh, or rebellious their practice is, no matter how much, how sinful their practice is, they can go online and they can find a community online that's going to tell them, you're okay, there's nothing wrong with it, and don't let anybody tell you otherwise. We live in a sin-commending community. We've talked a little bit about how rural America has been shifting ever since the turn of the century. In his novel, Main Street, this was written in 1927, long before this, Sinclair Lewis wrote that every, in, um, 
In every town of three houses, one of them will be a slum. But beyond just that little observation or that, that sarcastic statement, studies have, have been discussing lately since the turn of the century what's called the urban reality. In other words, it's not rural. It's, not, it's no longer the good old-fashioned rural neighborhood. It's more urban, and they're calling it urban. It's kind of hard to say. But a book I've been reading le- lately is called Leading Through Change, Shepherding the Town and Country Church in a New Era. I thought I'd be, I thought I'd be reading this book to, book to help to know better how to shepherd a s- smaller church um, in, you know, in change, but really to, to learn the crux of the book is that the country, the town and country church is changing. The, the rural community is changing. How do you help a church? How do you shepherd a church through those changes? Soon after the turn of the century, uh, studies like this were showing that there were 300 times more meth lab seizures in Iowa than in New York and New Jersey combined. In, we- in Wyoming, officials set, uh, est- estimated that one out of 100 people needs treatment for meth addiction. You can go on to citydata.com and look at Montgomery County and, and the percentage of the population uh, dealing with meth addiction is higher in in rural areas than it is in semi-urban uh, or urban environments. Same goes for um, alcohol consumption for teenagers or binge drinking for teenagers. One Nebraska pastor stated that it seemed like meth production was the primary source of income for his county. And in our century, drug-related homicides fell by 50% in some inner cities, but tripled in the countryside. One uh, quote from the book that I read, it says, We must come to grips with the fact that the wholesome country living no longer describes the lifestyle of many rural communities. Norman Rockwell paintings of old and in old Andy Griffith episodes about life in Mayberry no longer accurately depict life in many town and country settings. To be honest with you, I think in some ways, in some ways for a lot of small towns, it's good to know they're not the only ones. Waveland is not the little, only little town. That, that is experiencing 12 and 18-month residents just coming in and out. Ladoga is not the only town that's experiencing something like that, or Newmarket, or Crawfordsville. Sinful practices are much more prevalent today in the small town, and this could be because newcomers don't care about impressing the community. And so maybe it's much more open but they even say that, that, that long-time residents, teenagers of that small town, it will just get swept under the rug because we don't want anybody to know about this. And help never comes. Or maybe the scale is finally tipped to the side of everybody's doing it. But sin is more outward and acknowledged. But it's not slowing down at all. This spiral into a sinful community. 
So how do we, how do we beware of a sin commending community? How do we stand guard of this? Refuse first, refuse to leave a legacy of disobedience. That's what happened here. Is there developed a legacy of disobedience? Refuse to be a part of other people's legacies of disobedience. Refuse to join others in their wanderings outside of God's presence. But it doesn't start when somebody starts using drugs or, or turns their temptation into a lifestyle and decides that they're gay. It begins when we move out of a relationship of trust and obedience with our creator, God. When we replace him with the lie that we think something else will be more satisfying. It was described by Rebecca Van Nord when she says, we cover up the dead places in ourselves with all sorts of regalia. We fill the emptiness with fine clothing. Once in a lifetime experiences or relationships in which the other is set up as God. And underneath the trappings, though, were decaying. But the fact is, is that just as sure as sin brings a sad spiral to a family and to a society, repentance brings in the light. Confession brings the opportunity to say, I am wrong and God is right, but God can work here. God can redeem. God can restore. Accountability brings the opportunity for repetition. Brings the opportunity of not just taking one step, but taking one step after another, after another, and maybe two steps back, but then to keep moving forward from there. Vulnerability is good. We don't have to follow down that sad spiral. Well, in our passage last week, we see that the son that would bring the Messiah looked very different from his brother. And we, we briefly just looked at these verses last week, but we'll close in reading them. It says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Then Seth also bore a son and called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Why was it so important? Why, why was Eve so excited to have another son that would replace Abel? Because God had promised that from her offspring would come an offspring that was going to make all things right. Maybe not make society all right. Maybe not turn everybody from their sin, but would bring salvation, would bring the opportunity for sin to be paid for, for God's righteousness to be available, and for anyone that would, would turn from their, their sinful rebelliousness of doing it on their own and that would turn to God and say, my way is leading to hell. My way is leading me away from your presence. My way is just causing me to wander. 
but you have paved the way for me to be in relationship with you again. Not to be from your presence, but to live in your presence. What was exciting about this is that he would be the one to bring the Savior. Even though God's enemy was, is always raising up a competing culture, as we see right from the very beginning, the devil has always tried to choke out, to drown out, to intimidate God's answer. The answer is still the same as it has always been. Call on the name of the Lord. Call on his character. Call on who he is as the saving, redeeming, restoring God. No longer do we look back and think the Lord will send a Savior. But we look back on this story and we say the Savior was sent. The Savior came. The line of Seth finally brought that Savior and he brought salvation. He brought redemption. He brought restoration. That's what our world needs. That's what this society needs. And we have to resist being a part of it. And we have to offer them the answer in Christ. This has been Applying the Bible, part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Fellowship. We are a fellowship of followers of Christ who seek to make it about Him and His gospel mission in our daily lives. And if this message has been helpful for you, please feel free to subscribe and share Applying the Bible with a friend.